Welcome to Shit You Don't Want to Talk About. Before listening to today's episode, please be advised, some content may include discussion around topics that are difficult to hear, especially for children under the age of 13. We want to encourage you to care for yourself, security, and well-being. Resources of each episode will be listed in the episode description and on the website shittotalkabout.com. Hey, Brian. Thank you for joining Shit You Don't Want to Talk About. Please introduce yourself and what shit you want to talk about today. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, Brian Asinja, I go by Asinja. And uh, the shit that I want to talk about today is mainly, uh, I would say, three things. Uh, my life's journey and experience. Uh, my latest book, Cashless Society 101. And I suppose most importantly, the bigger theme of the book, which is uh, uh, ethics and doing the right thing. Very cool. And Let's start with where are you right now? Where, uh, yes, I know uh, last time we chatted, I believe you're physically in New York uh, and we'll go into your background, but as an author, are you a full-time author? Do you work as well? What, where are you at in life now? Sure. Um, Physically, I'm in New York, but uh, let's talk more about the question that you're asking, which is where I am, I, I suppose, in life. Uh, I would say I'm um, a management consultant more on a full-time basis, uh, working with different businesses and helping them uh, either optimize their digital um, like uh, strategy, like helping them add more technology to their business, but also increasingly uh, beginning to, uh, to help businesses uh, optimize for revenue so that they can bring in more money uh, or, or get funding because one way or the other, some things have to be funded. Um, that's, I would say, on a day-to-day basis. And, and I would say on average, we, we as a company, we can handle three to 10 companies or three to 10 accounts a year because we're still a small team. Um, and it does keep me pretty busy, but I like moving from project to project. As an author, this is my second book. Uh, My first was The Last Digital Frontier, which primarily focused on the history and future of technology in Africa. So kind of looking at innovation before colonialism, innovation during colonialism, and where Africa could go from here. And the latest book, Cashless Society 101. Uh, So the first book uh, came out in 2019. It was self-published through our company. Uh, but the second book is coming out uh, this spring in March uh, through New Degree Press, the publisher. And I'm excited most, mostly about it because it's mostly a reflection of my own journey uh, growing up in Uganda and, and kind of having been around corruption, seeing my own dad being arrested almost regularly for corruption uh, in a society that almost normalized um, taking bribes or, or I would say uh, having unethical business practices. So I've always wondered what, whether or not it's, it's worth it to try to lead the right path in an environment that not, does not encourage that. And so it was my own way of looking at my own experience. It was my own way of looking at people around me and asking questions. Uh, but more importantly, also looking at specific case studies of businesses like Boeing, Facebook, Apple, talking to a lot of experts uh, on how they navigate business and life. Because even though sometimes we try to separate the two, uh, often 
our personal lives impact our business and vice versa. Definitely. They definitely do impact each other. And thank you for the, the navigation of where you're at now. And that so perfectly brought up your own journey. And so you were born in Uganda and how old were you when you moved to the U S I would say I was uh, 18. So I was okay. born in February. Actually, my birthday is coming up. Uh, so I was happy born in February. Happy early birthday. Happy early birthday. Yeah, thank you. And so I moved here in the summer. Uh, I remember actually quite clearly around June 23rd, uh, 2006. Uh, I was 18 and I was, uh, I came as part of an international exchange program. So I was going to go study at a boarding school in Montezuma, New Mexico. Uh, close to the old Las Vegas, which there's a story there because I initially got excited thinking I'm going to Las Vegas, Nevada. Turns out I was going to a very small town in Montezuma, New Mexico. So I, I did miss out on that New Mexico experience, on that Las Vegas experience, but maybe someday I will. Uh, and so I, at 18, I was uh, coming to do a two-year international high school experience uh, for 11th and 12th grade. Uh, they did what is known as uh, International Baccalaureate or IB program, which is a different type of examination. I would say maybe as difficult, if not more difficult than the AP kind of exams for those that go to standard high school. And um, yeah, that really exposed me to uh, a lot of people from all over the world. On average, you had about 200 students from 93 countries across two class years. And it just exposed my world to a lot of more possibilities and allowed me to just understand why things were different, home, how they could be better, what things were better here, what things could be better here. So it, it started me thinking that we are not all the same, mm-hmm. um, but it, it doesn't mean we don't have to get along because the first two weeks were spent basically um, us trying to correct each other. Like, this is not the right way to eat, or this is not the right way you should be doing this. And we realized that was frustrating. What was, you know, we were like, we're going to be stuck here for two years. Maybe we should focus on what we, we are all enjoying. What can we do together? Rather than what is the right way of greeting somebody or cleaning your, your room. And so uh, the differences sort of took a backside and we started focusing on what we can learn from each other and support with each other. And I think that ended up working out well because I'm still in touch with those people that have stayed in my life. That's beautiful and interesting. Uh, we didn't talk about Las Vegas on our intro call and uh, my family actually used to live uh, at one point in Las Vegas, New Mexico. Wow. Yeah, so I actually know where that is. And I love, yeah, I'm, I love Santa Fe. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people know. So I definitely suggest to those out there, go check it out. The New Mexico desert is absolutely beautiful. And yeah. so is Santa Fe. And now that we kind of have an idea of how you got to the U.S., mm-hmm. how did you it, bring us back to, especially with your first book and your experience in in Uganda, it, because you're talking about uh, colonialism and in in Africa, mm-hmm. uh, as we're talking about that, could you, in a in a brief synopsis, explain what colonialism is for those who may not have sure. may have heard the word but not know what yeah. it means? 
Yeah, so I think colonialism, and, and again, let's be more specific, to say, take an American audience for comparison vis-a-vis a Ugandan or uh, uh, African uh, audience. Um, so colonialism, I think, is a period, and that's what it is. I would say 1500s to uh, one could go up to like 1960s. That's when most of the countries became independent. Uh, was a period of expansionism, let's call it that, uh, where the old um, imperial, uh, when we talk of monarchs, uh, for example, the United Kingdom was still under the, the queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth. Uh, really, uh, just like America was expanding westward to increase its influence and capture more land and be more, uh, suppose have more of a way to support its citizens, uh, the, the British Empire at that time, among obviously a lot of European countries, uh, realized that there was a lot of wealth and resources in India and in Africa and, and other areas that in short, rather than them paying a fair price for, would be cheap, they thought would be cheaper in the long term for them to just go and conquer these areas so they can control these resources direct from the source. And Um, uh, as an example for our listeners, just to um, maybe piece it together some, you mentioned India, uh, definitely uh, parts of Africa, New Zealand is also a place mm-hmm. that this has happened. Um, yeah, parts of Easter Australia. Island. Yeah, Australia. So this is something that I think a lot of Americans uh, specifically probably don't know much about or talk about. So I appreciate the the backstory to get us up right. to speed. Yeah, and it was it was purely a resource grab, or uh, uh, and you know, and, and you know, if you if you if you for U.S. residents, the the history is more around. Uh, having not necessarily colonies, but maybe uh, areas of interest. If you think the Cuba, the, the sugar coming from Cuba and, and, and sort of the Panama con- Canal kind of conflict, that's the same kind of legacy of trying to have an invested ent- interest in an area because of a resource. It could be sugar, it could be oil uh, with uh, Iraq and other areas, even though people may think of that differently that you then deem it necessary to have either a political military presence or in some cases uh, it could be more of a diplomatic presence where you can have a regent, somebody who reports back to you. So maybe you're not ruling directly, but it is clear that there is tribute or some kind of tax system where the local government can then pay in terms of resources or money back to you as the ruling authority. Uh, so I think that practice started with, again, it didn't just start with Europeans. It had started um, at the, by the 1500s, you know, Africans had already been trading among us themselves. They had been trading with uh, Arabs and, and Indians uh, who would sail the Indian Ocean on, on large ships, uh, take, mostly bring spices and then take other resources back. And so the Indian trade was really the big um, area of opportunity. And at that point, I think England or or British Empire had a large navy or was continually improving its navy. Uh, And so saw an opportunity to 
uh, one, get rid of piracy, which was the situation where these people that did not answer to any sovereignty or government had large ships on the sea and would just steal goods and raid other ships and, and just take commodities without paying any taxes or anything. Uh, so in, under the guise of uh, providing order on the waters, and, and of course, bringing civilization to these uh, African or, or, or Indian areas, they then wanted to provide this order, both socially, but also for economic purposes or on, on the water or for, through their Navy, uh, which was a military operation. Uh, with the ultimate goal, of course, of, of again, securing and managing these uh, trade routes and, and, and in, in, by extension, be in charge of the business that comes through these areas. Uh, so a, lot of, a quick example of the, some of the things that were of interest in Africa uh, would have been, obviously, uh, gold. There was a lot of iron, um, a lot of metals, mineral uh, sort of wealth. Um, cotton, this, uh, because a lot of the land was rich. Uh, so there was a lot of agriculture farming from cocoa, uh, in, in Ghana, West Africa, to um, tea in Kenya, uh, to coffee in Uganda and other areas that was grown purely for export purposes. So I call that the, the extraction phase of innovation because if they built a railway, most of the time the sole purpose was to take resources out of a country, out of a continent, as opposed to like a Japan where they might just build a railway so villagers can get to school on time. Yeah. So it becomes a different application of technology or innovation where for the beneficiary, it's still helping them. Like it's still helping the British government get its resources. But for the local community, um, they are kind of not necessarily thought of as part of the design process for infrastructure or for transportation and other things. So for me, that's why the history of it is somewhat important because we need to be able to have a different way of thinking mm -hmm. about how infrastructure is designed moving forward, how technology is designed forward, moving forward, so that it's not just about taking from one community to benefit another community, but really more of an exchange. Uh, and, and that's what I, I, the term... Uh, inclusive innovation kind of comes from there where the core theme is about access like how do you make sure the the communities that are actually creating and using these things can co-create be involved in building and designing solutions and ultimately benefit from them and to take a pause there really quick because uh, sure. we just went through a lot and yeah. <laughs> I, I I do want to call out something for our listeners and for myself is specifically when people come on this podcast, they're normally open to me just asking them whatever random questions I throw their way. I, I do want to take a pause and say, for example, not everyone from Uganda is going to have this experience and want to talk about all of this. Sure. Uh, I, I want to say that in, in there is such an intellectual burden put on individuals when we first meet them or curiosity that we just are like, you're from Uganda. You can teach me everything about Uganda. And exactly. 
I, I do want to take a pause there uh, for that because thank you for taking the time to teach us all this. And also as uh, behind the scenes, I would tease you on being an academic because you are so intellectual and I love it. Uh, I appreciate you letting me ask all the random questions. Sure. Now, to recap what we just went through, uh, we spoke about colonialism and, for example, how the UK would take over a country to be able to take its goods. And the inclusive uh, innovation is to make it so that way it's not just taking from that country to give to back to the UK. It can be something that can be uh, synergetic where mm -hmm. it could benefit. Symbiotic, yeah, yeah. Symbiotic, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, I'll, I'll quickly summarize it. And, and the way I extend that conversation in my second book, Cultural Societies, to then give an example of a country that's India that's managed to change that narrative. So India now says, uh, the government says, number one, as a foreign company, say you're a company from the US or, or Europe, you can now, it's a very impossible to have 100% ownership of a company in India. That's number one. So that means local ownership. It means a certain percentage of the owners of any company operating in India will actually be Indians, will actually be local, and they'll benefit from that success of that company. Number two, you cannot be fully operating as a foreign company in India. You actually have to uh, partner with an Indian company as a foreign company. So Amazon cannot directly have a business in India. They have to pay or contract an Indian company to do the very thing that Amazon wants to do in India. So when Amazon is producing all these great TV shows in India, it does not do it as Amazon. It actually hires Indian companies to do that work, which obviously creates jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, when we compare that to the colonial example that we were looking at, uh, the British brought in Indians to build the railroad when there were already Africans in Africa. And so you, this concept of, we call it technology transfer, where you're taking something that already works in one area and just taking it as is to another area without localizing it or making it work for the local people has mm -hmm. very big negative consequences. And so I think this new inclusive way of doing innovation, localizing it, making sure it works for the local people in terms of let them be the ones creating the, the railway or filming the, the, the TV shows or delivering the packages, if it's an Amazon kind of example, you get to have them be a part of that local economy uh, and, and that gives them jobs. They can now have money to send their kids to school. Uh, and more than anything, actually, as they make money, they become customers of these other companies. So I think it's a very easy way to lift people out of poverty because it's focused on jobs and with jobs comes taxation and, and sort of improved uh, uh, living standards. And that is so cool to, to see that a country is taking ownership of that mm -hmm. and, and taking the, you could say their power back in the fact exactly. of uh um, I, I use this as a example between relationships of two people need to be able to put into the love box. And if one person always takes 
and the other person always gives, that's Uh going to burn that one person out and cause resentment. And well, in the idea of uh, India, um, you know, they were able to create that boundary and and make a a solution from past trauma. That is that is so cool. It's really a powerful example to say we know our value. And that's actually really quickly as part of the other concept. Uh, let me now try to define cashless society, at least what it means for me. Yes, I was just going to be asking you that. So, so perfect. I love, I love your mug, by the way. So I have two, two definitions there. Uh, one is the technical one or the academic one. And it's been around since the 60s, which says the cashless society will be the society that prefers uh, electronic transactions. So it means we're going to rely on computers to do the counting, to count the money, to send the money, for you to visit your doctor using your phone instead of physically going to the hospital. So it's it's not just about cash. It's anything that uses technology or electronic kind of a transaction. Um, that's what the cashless society refers to. So I would argue that for some areas, like filing your taxes online, like ordering your your Starbucks coffee online uh, is actually an example of a cashless experience or contactless as we're calling it in the COVID era. And uh, that's one definition. The second is more of a personal definition that I added, which is more philosophical, uh, which means that things have value before you tie them to fiat or cash. Fiat means like government currency tradition, like a dollar or a euro or a pound or Japanese yen. So the example we're looking at in India, it's India saying, okay, we know we have a lot of smart people. You can no longer just hire them and pay them less. You can no longer use their resources and not pay them what you would be paying in a fair market. Mm-hmm. So the value then um, is there whether or not you pay them is what the government is saying. It's up to you to now start paying them their fair wage. We can bring that same example to maybe US uh, labor laws where the living wage versus minimum wage is still a debate to say, mm-hmm. are people being paid enough to afford to live in the areas they live in? Uh, the answer is no. And, <laughs> and so one could argue that the work that people are doing is actually worth more than what they're being paid because in an ideal sense, they should be able to afford to live. Otherwise, what's the point of working, right? So at a bare minimum, before we even think numbers, we work so we can afford to live. It's not like we live to work, I, I would hope. It's the other way around, right? So, so that's where it's coming from. But even beyond these human needs or values, I'm saying, if we look at a, as Africa as a continent, for example, with so many countries, um, that there's value in their resources, even before the West says, mm, we want to take them for $0 or we'll take them for nothing because we've created a war there, right? That you can still be proud that you have land You can still be proud that you own a house. You can still be proud that you go to school because whether or not somebody is paying you a dollar for that 
you own it and it's yours and it's worth something. Um, so I think I call it the external validation. Whenever we wait for other people, you talked about relationships. If you're always waiting for other people to tell you whether or not your relationship is doing good, it's likely not going to survive, right? Because you don't Very have true. the confidence yourself to know whether or not you like the person or whether or not it's a good relationship. So I think even for countries and, and governments and citizens, that relationship between people, between governments, between companies, sometimes we can appreciate a good thing before we even know how much it costs, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's kind of the concept of cashless, of like put the money aside and think about the human values that make you think this thing is important. And another quick example is health, healthcare, since we're in a COVID-19 situation now, you know? A lot of people, I would hope, would agree that you can't put a price on the life of someone. So if somebody needs an insulin vaccine, should we really, you know, have such high prices so that people can't afford to stay alive? Or can we say, you know, when it comes to matters of life and death, maybe it should be more than who can afford to stay alive as a society? Maybe that's what we decide is important. Uh, so I think the cashless part that's more philosophical tries to bring in these questions of like, what does it even mean to, uh, to work, to live a worthy life, to, to do good in the world? You know, is it a life and, mother, life and death situation? Does it, is, should you only care then? Otherwise, all is well. Or should we, we even care in the little moments, like you mentioned, when you're in a relationship with your partner, in a family, in a school? Uh, and I argue that sometimes it's in the little moments where it's actually very important to, to be more human and, and, and think about these values and not just the money. So I know I went on for a while, but I wanted to make sure I offered some clear examples uh, that you, people could bring to. You definitely did. And uh Thank you for the definition and, and also your added definition. I, in, in my own personal experience, I can see how, at least from my understanding, how cashless society has started to change uh, with, we'll say, millennials of we, a lot of millennials would rather have a good work culture instead of uh, a high salary. Exactly. They would rather be doing good in the world instead of a high salary, make an impact instead of income. Mm -hmm. Yet, and, and that is an absolutely beautiful thing. And I'm, I'm so grateful that it, it is changing and, and the impact is being made. Yet, I feel like that is, uh, how to say it? It's it's it, fixing it's a the middle. Of, yeah, it's like fixing it's a, the middle fixing of the a problem. Symptom. Yeah, but we're not fixing the core of the problem. Yeah, yeah. treating a symptom. And, I think. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and that's a great way of saying it. You're tra we're treating a symptom, and it's great to see that the generations are changing. Yet, to your point of, we have so many that are that are not making a living wage. And are so you have that aspect and also our older generation. And as we all age, we'll not be getting the care that we need. And 
I I would love to dive in more to find out more about your book and how mm-hmm. to start thinking about this on an ethical basis because that is it as being someone in a startup and having to think budget and also people and leadership and there yeah. it is can become very very clouded when you think about business versus humans yeah and how do you bring and ethics how to do, that? yeah how do we bring the two together um i think they i'll start with how the book ends and then i'll go into the beginning <laughs> or, or, or the four main themes in the book so the two important arguments because my editor and publisher were like you have to find a way to 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 you know concretely say what it is you were trying to say and i'm like but i thought i have and they're like no you have to say it again so the two main arguments I make at the end of the book are one that individual agency, like the ability for you as an individual to make the right decision or, or try to do what you think is right is very, very important. Uh, not just in a Western society like America, but also in communal societies like Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Your decision as an individual impacts the community and and that may go from controversial things like vaccination to very simple things like uh, uh, obviously um, if you're part of a football team, you know how your individual contribution can lead to the success of a team. And likewise, that applies to a company. So I think individual agency or decision-making and action uh, in a time when we feel like as individuals, corporations are too powerful, governments are too powerful, we can't do anything. Um, I think that's the one thing I've come to admire about America is, is that individualism is fostered and celebrated so that you never feel like uh, you're incapable of doing something. Um, so that's a powerful thing that we should never forget, even when you're in a tough situation, because that's when you're going to need to rely on your own beliefs. Uh, the second argument is the need or the power of collaboration. And this is especially more important for governments, for businesses, you know, to stop thinking, if you think of China, US, that they can control the world alone, which is really (laughs) the, 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 the argument that's going on now, right? You know, China wants one version of the internet, the US wants another version. But rather that if they actually work together as they did by, you know, with space technology sending people into space a lot of governments actually collaborated to make that happen Uh, it's if the governments or institutions collaborate we the people actually benefit Mm -hmm. tremendously from that collaboration Um, another example could be the internet you know, before we lose it, because we might, if China goes one way and the US another way, it would have a divided internet. We can just share information all over the world mm-hmm. without a lot of gates uh, or limits. Um, so the, then really quickly, the four main things, you know, I did mention like the individual agency being based on values. You know, the one thing I couldn't resolve, and I'm happy to have a conversation with you on this, so try to remember this, is what values do we share as human beings? 
we have the UN Declaration of Human Rights. We have all these things. But are there really, if can you tell me one, two, three values that we really share that we could use to make decisions at work, that we could use to design technology that is smarter than us, that can then drive us to work? That's a question I'm here to answer. But let me quickly end by saying the four themes. You know, one is identity. You know, when you're in a company or in a country, it doesn't matter at school, your identity matters. And I refer to digital identity, but I also refer to your culture and your language. It's your sense of belonging. That's your core. Um, the second is ownership. Your ideas, but also the traditional ownership of like the stocks and what's in your bank account and the deed and that you, of the land that your family left you. You own those things and they are just as important, money or no money. The third is trust. We talked about relationships before. Uh, our relationship connection, it kind of means the same to me. Trust is important. You have to trust the other person. But even if you don't trust the other person, how can you be able to do business with them? And sometimes the banks come in to provide that trust. Sometimes the government comes in to provide that trust. But I think more and more, we don't trust governments. More and more, we don't trust banks. So trust is going to be more important at work and also in the technologies we create. And then the last thing is obviously our scale. You know, scale means like how many, how big can this thing be? How many people can use it? Uh, and I think for, it also comes down to access. When you know, we started the conversation on local people being able to participate in an economy. So for me, scale means access, means, uh, and I'll end with this example, when you think of like banking with your phone, not everybody in Africa has access to a bank account. Not everybody in India has access to a bank account. But people can now send money on their phone to their relatives, pay, do uh, shopping for their kids at school using their phone, just a simple text message. They don't even need the internet. Um, so financial literacy and knowing about economics and banking and budgeting all of a sudden can be understood by everybody in a very simple way without even the existence of a bank. So when you ask the question around the workplace, I think it has to come back to what are the values of the company? What are the values of you as an individual? Because that's the lens that will guide you in the decisions you make. And sometimes not the, the rules that HR or, or legal has written, even though they are important, uh, but there's such a thing called a dilemma where you sometimes don't know what's the right or wrong thing, wrong thing to do. And that's when your values come in. And that sets up perfectly um, to starting at the end of the book and also questions about the, the four uh, pillars of when I understand the individual and identity just, there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that yet I feel like at, at least for myself, I have this experience being able to fully understand individual agency for myself mm -hmm. and then being able to go collaborate because 
if if when I didn't know what my own agency was, it's very, very difficult to collaborate in, because there's, in my mind, there's a difference between uh, to collaborate is to share your values, to disagree, to really have a healthy discussion. And if you, it's like, if you don't know who self is, it makes it very difficult to be a group. And I'm curious, does your book go into in bit more detail of how someone builds that up or do you have resources to show that as an individual? Yeah. So I think one of the things I set out to do as a book is I use my own personal experience as the example. Uh, And that's one way to look at me as a lens to say, well, this is how he did this. I talk to other people that have dealt with more complex things and how they bring themselves into the workplace. You know, one quick story is uh, Dr. Jose uh, Moray, who's a uh, Latin American, um, well, actually, American citizen, but he's, 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 uh, he's Hispanic. And he, he's worked for NASA, he's advised the White House, he's worked for um, uh the boring company, they do this smart, the future of transport, where they, they're going to dig these big tunnels and just create these vacuums for the, <laughs> you know, the, cool. the, the cuts to just, so you can go straight from New York to like San Francisco in like a very short time anyway. But he realized like for him, his, his purpose after being in this innovation space for a long time was to get more people like him you know, more black and brown people to be excited about science, to be excited about technology. And so his biggest achievement to date in his own words is starting his own company now called Ad Astra Media, where they use NASA images and they actually partner with NASA to use NASA images and icons and create these beautiful animations uh, featuring uh, just you know, black and brown kids, so they can also get to see themselves in space and be excited about technology. And, and that's just one way of somebody that is an academic, has PhDs, reaching below and saying, you know, for the next generation, they may not necessarily understand my PhD research, but if I created an animation, if I created a doctor character that takes them on an adventure, maybe that will help them awaken their interest and curiosity. Um, So to bring it back to the question you asked, how does one find that, uh, that, that voice? Is it starts with asking, being comfortable asking. And, and that's something I, I just reiterate throughout the book. Uh, Often we are told that if you ask too many questions, right you're causing trouble and i say let's let's all cause trouble (laughs) let's just cause trouble because to me that's the kind of trouble that i like so i've always been as i'm I'm curious as you noticed from the start of a conversation from our conversation you just ask when you don't know and if you don't ask google although google doesn't know everything (laughs) but if you don't want to ask a human being ask google uh, you'll have at least a place to start but more than anything look inward too and start asking yourself what do i care about what are my values 
You know, what is my moral compass? Because you have to know that and believe it for yourself before you go work for an organization, uh, especially for millennials or younger people. Um, personally, I struggled being in the finance industry. Um, it's stereotypically known for greed. It's stereotypically known for uh, just being very aggressive. I grew up as a shy kid, so uh, I'm like, okay, we're going to have to adapt and manage. But in the end, I realized, you know, maybe I don't have to change so much. Right? Maybe I can focus on uh, the part that I've come to like, which is that business or creating jobs can change communities. And when you create a business in a community, people have jobs, people can send their kids to school. So I didn't necessarily have to change the sector or the industry. I just have to change why I'm doing it. And the moment I made it more about the human lens or, or changing communities and creating jobs and communities, I can do that the rest of my life and I'll never feel bored. And, so and if, that is definitely relatable in the yeah. fact that I was in, was in sales for over 12 years. Sales is not my thing whatsoever. I can sell, but that was never my goal. All I wanted to do was to talk to people, to ask my gazillion million questions that yes, I have always been known as a troublemaker mm-hmm. and it was really to go and let them know, hey, I got to know you as a human and we have things that can help you, yet it's okay if you don't get it because it's giving them that agency, not mm-hmm. a fear, not a like a con. It is giving someone that agency and just being able to connect to them as a human. And exactly. I, I love that you were able to frame that differently for yourself. Yeah, and I think it's thanks to people like you. Like uh, part of the reason, whenever I'm on great podcasts, like where we're having a conversation, like we are now, it's really the safest way to even do an interview because if it's so structured, it may scare some people that are not good at public speaking. <laughs> uh, and and so when it's a safe space where you can actually exchange ideas and have a conversation, I always leave thinking, "Oh my God, that was just wonderful," you know. To, to enjoy uh, being interviewed, to enjoy sharing about myself in a way that maybe sometimes feel vulnerable or maybe sometimes you just like, you know, you have what is called imposter syndrome. Do I, am I even expert enough to talk, you know? So really quickly, I think the other example I've seen over time is I, I've been, part of the reason I wrote my first book about Africa was I see a lot of uh, um let's just say non-African experts on Africa. You know, somebody visited Africa for one week, now they know everything about Africa. Whereas somebody who grew up there, somebody who learned all there is to learn about Africa, maybe isn't considered an expert on Africa, but because somebody is a foreigner and they visited for a month, they get to say on their resume, they visited Africa and now they know it. So, For me, it was a way of like, you know, maybe for that percentage of people that may really want to know about Africa from somebody that's been there, that's lived there, I will write my own. I will have my own voice. I'll add my own voice to the conversation. And so there was validation that came from that book where people read it and and said, wow, like, you know, it was eye-opening. I read things I didn't know, like, 
I, I ended up being invited to Howard University in DC, which is a historically black university. Uh, and even for me, that was again, as an African being able to go to a university that uh, historically had educated African-Americans in the US, it was a huge moment for me of, of, of bridging that divide and, and being able to connect with them academically and socially. And it felt like a coming home of some sorts for me. So I think I've seen firsthand how, you know, following your own curiosity and slowly developing your own voice can both open doors, but literally uh, bring new opportunities uh, and put you in a place where you never thought you could be uh, only because you asked, only because you decided to write to a friend or just step out of your comfort zone. And so the moment you know what matters to you and you start pursuing it, things start happening and you find your tribe that okay. then supports you. Yeah. And, and A, I, I can only imagine how magical that was uh, being a part of uh, that university academically and socially and that feeling of coming home uh, mm -hmm. that when you find your tribe. Now, I know for so many years, I struggled to find my tribe. Mm -hmm. I honestly didn't know if it was even possible because I no matter when I met someone, I always put them above me. I put them on mm -hmm. a pedestal and it didn't matter, matter what walk of life or um, if they had a degree, no degree, how much they made. I, I always put myself as less than because I really struggled with my own worth. And I mentioned that because it took me so long to realize even as a high school dropout, I'm worthy, even though, you know, I was uh, a self-harm when I was in high school, I'm still worthy. And it's, it's magical to exactly to your point, when you find your voice, it really opens up opportunities to, when you, you go towards your goals, because I know that there's other people that have been through similar experiences. And it's important for them to share their stories too. It's not a competition because yeah. others may relate to them better. And mm -hmm. if they do, that's wonderful because we all can make a difference in the world. And to really bring it back around, when you find your own values, your own voice, that impacts your community, that impacts your, your to be able to collaborate that impacts to be able to in businesses and government and really ties it back into India knowing their worth. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 sometimes it takes I'm not saying it's easy to, to step up and find that voice. It's a step-by-step -step process. It's a lifelong process, you know, and you're always learning and improving. And so um I think partly that's what I also like about maybe writing or books. It's like a conversation. It's like, oh, since I can only have this conversation with you right now, a podcast is a way to share that conversation with more people, just like a book is a way to have my own thoughts and my own ideas or conversations I've had with other people, with a lot more people through a medium of a book. And so 
it, it's kind of a, it, by embracing these means of like, okay, maybe I don't have a TV network. Maybe I don't have, but there's always these other tools that can then amplify your voice. Uh, even sharing your idea with a friend. Um, it's often amazing if we go back to that idea of vulnerability and, and kind of not knowing where to start. Um, it's always amazing how when you start to uh, maybe believe in yourself and you start to speak up for yourself, um, that all of a sudden other people that were in your situation start looking at you for guidance. So you're never alone, even when you think you're alone. That's what, I, to me, that agency conversation is all about. It's like, we may feel powerless. We may feel ineffective as individuals, yet it's when an individual does something that other people notice and start to care and start to support. And so maybe if all you can do is be the person that starts the spark, you don't have to be the one that carries it to the finish line because sometimes it's a lot of work. Yeah. But, but you could do that. You could be the first person to stand up and say, this just doesn't feel right. I don't feel like I want to do this. Uh, and maybe other people will see it, you know, and, and, and it doesn't have to always be a public result. Like, Oh, well, how much did you get paid for not doing that thing? You know, <laughs> that shouldn't be yeah. the way. It should be yeah. some kind of internal reward that you've decided yourself based on your values. Uh, this is the red line for you. And that's going to vary for each of us, depending on the circumstances we're in. But when you finally do, even in small circumstances, it does matter because it can prepare you to then be able to say no to a much bigger thing um, when you wouldn't have trusted yourself in the first place. Agreed, 100%. And I know that we've gone through a lot today. And yeah. did we miss anything that you specifically wanted to go over today? Yeah. Um, I would say that maybe the part that we missed, uh, let's say, is the role of government. Oh, do tell. What is the role yeah. of government? I said the role of government in a cultural society is, is both to provide guidance, kind of be the adult in the room saying, <laughs> is this robot going to kill us? Is this robot really taking our jobs? Sometimes they are because they're robots flipping hamburgers now. But I think it's more importantly that we don't fear technology, that we look at it as a resource, as a tool being here to help us. You know, just like you use your car to get to work or to go shopping, uh, technology is going to help us do the things we like doing better. However, whenever there's problems, we should look inward back to ourselves and government can help us have those conversations with ourselves, with our communities, in a civilized manner, hopefully not through guns or violence. Uh, and I think that's the fundamental role for government to provide safe spaces for public debate and conversation around how best to create and use technology. Is there someone somewhere that you would suggest for people to look more into understanding government, especially uh, with the example of them being the adult in the room, because uh, yeah. with that example specifically, it, it does feel like 
it can be a lost cause knowing that as an individual with agency, where to go to collaborate. Yeah. Yeah, So I think we all have a role to play, right? Government has a role. Um, There will always be a role for government. Uh, That's why we pay our taxes. Otherwise, we would all do it ourselves, right? And so what's more important, and I know because uh, I think growing up in Uganda, we weren't encouraged to participate in politics or know about politics because it's a very dangerous (laughs) space to be in. Uh, I find myself in my 30s fascinated by politics and understanding, you know what? policymakers, you know, who make rules on how, what's the safe speed for driving, what's, um, it does actually impact business and communities. And so you can't just ignore the rulemaking side of of society, because after all, government is made of people from your very own communities, at least in a democracy. So that's why it becomes important. You can be involved by voting, for someone, you can be involved by discussing, you can be involved as a journalist, sharing ideas. Um, but there's a lot of ways to, um, so government to me means issues that impact our community, which brings us back to values and the things we care about. What do we care about? Uh, on one of the podcasts, somebody asked me, what advice do you have to a, a five-year-old? I said, they should be comfortable asking questions. And I would want to know what kind of world they wish to see as a five-year-old so that it's not one-sided. I don't want to just tell them what to do. I also want to know what they would like to see or do. Uh, And I think it's that level of exchange of like the government can do something for us, but because we are part of government, we help create government just like we help create technology. We can tell government, I don't like that Google tracks everywhere I go. I don't like that Facebook um, recommends advertisements because of something I said when my phone was turned off. <laughs> you know, in Europe, these are big concerns that are being investigated and looked yeah. at. Uh, and so that's to me is what I mean. You know, where can people go? Start with your own home, your own community, your own school. It doesn't have, you know, we don't have to change the world ourselves, but we can change ourselves and our families and our communities uh, if we start with ourselves and collaborate. I, you said that so wonderfully, thank you. And uh, before we wrap up, uh, what words of wisdom would you give the audience and how do they reach out to you and read your book? Sure, Um, words of wisdom, I like threes. So number one, just keep asking questions and having conversations with each other, especially in this time where we haven't seen each other for a while. A lot of people are staying home, a lot of people for health reasons and otherwise. Uh, It's important to keep talking to each other so we don't become strangers, even if we're living right next to each other or across the stage from each other. So that's important to, to continue to have dialogue and conversation. I think number two, let's bring it back to government. Elections are coming up in 2024, I suppose. Um, You know, government is for the people. So be curious about it. Ask yourself, you know, what has my city done for me lately? 
and read the local newspaper if you can once in a while because it will start giving you some insights on what's going on in your own backyard. Uh, I would say lastly, um, I'll just end on the individual agency part. You matter, your voice matters, um, regardless of who you are, where you are, and forget maybe what you've been told and start um, owning that voice. Start um, being hard because you have something to say and to contribute, even though you might have been silenced. And, and that means use whatever ways you know how to be hard. You could be an artist, you could be a painter, you could be a technology person. Put your mark on the world in all these secret, fun, innovative ways you know how. And trust me, there will be people listening and there will be people just ready to acknowledge that. and. It's not always talking. There's many ways to express yourself. Um, so let your voice be heard. And as far as where people can find me, it's brianasinger.com, B-R-I-A-N-A-S-I-N-G-I-A dot C-O-M. And the, hash, uh, the social media handle is the same at brianasinger across Instagram, Twitter. So looking forward to seeing you on the website where you can get a free copy of the new book for the next 30 days, I think. Yay, and very, very last question. What is something that you're grateful for? I would say I'm grateful for my mother for having introduced me to uh, books and the love of reading. She's an English teacher, almost retiring. And I think she just nurtured my curiosity and allowed me to see places before I ever visited them. So I got to read about the world before I saw the world. And I'm forever grateful for that. Oh, I love that. And I, I would say uh, it's similar lines of, I am just grateful for curiosity. It oh. is, there's so many wonders of the world and the unquenchable thirst of curiosity is, it's just so exciting. There's, there's so much to learn and so much to see and so much to do that it's beautiful how we learn and adapt. And so. you don't have, it's okay not to know everything. Yes, yes. All the Googling <laughs> in the world will not solve that. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, Perfect. thank you. Thank you for being on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. We appreciate you listening to the episode. Please like, follow, and share on our social media at shit to talk about. That is shit the number two talk about. Stay tuned on Wednesdays and Fridays for new episodes. This episode was made possible by production manager Trom Nguyen, business manager Bill Powell, and your host Jeff.